So I've got a book talk about this chapter. It's sort of a story about how a lot of histories of computing start with Babbage. Other people get into the people right before Babbage, people Babbage was was reading, like De Pony. But then they don't usually go all the way back to where I go, which is the French encyclopedias. But it's a pretty straight, historically, it's a pretty straightforward story because everybody references everybody else that I put in the story. And yet very few people tell the whole story. Well, this is part three of a multi-part series with Warren Sachs, professor of digital media at UCSC and a close personal friend of mine. We're talking about his book, The Software Arts, and this is chapter three about language. We were talking about the history of kind of talking about how to describe things, which is also another way of thinking about what software actually is. So yeah, you just mentioned in kind of our opening about the encyclopedists. So who are the encyclopedists? What time frame are we talking about? We all know what an encyclopedia is, but is that where they came from? Well, the encyclopedists that I reference aren't the first encyclopedists, but I would say the first large-scale encyclopedists. The the work ended up having multi-volumes. And it was uh, two scholars, uh, one a mathematician, the other one more a writer. Diderot and D'Alembert were the editors of the encyclopedia. And a big part of this encyclopedia from, I guess they started around, well, it's it's the mid um, 18th century. It's like 1740 or so. And a big part of the encyclopedia was what we would understand today as sort of maker knowledge. Like, how do, how do you make this? How do you make that? So they sent people all over France to do careful observation of what artists and artisans were doing in their studios. What were the machines that they were using? What were the processes that they used in order to make everything from stockings to jewelry to guns to everything? And so if you read the encyclopedia, there's two there's two parts to it really. One part is written. How does how do these things get done? Almost in step-by-step recipes. And then the other part are these really detailed etchings that just show how things are made in all these different uh, workshops and studios. These two encyclopedias from the mid-1740s era, why were they doing this? And where were they going to do their, their documentation, if you will? Uh, you, you can well imagine that there was a lot of pushback about this, right? Because at the time, the craft guilds had a lock on the secret recipes, if you will. And they were really not keen to have this all open source, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, if you write down exactly what someone's doing, you can then somebody else can do it. Exactly. So there were guilds, and that's how they the intellectual property was protected. Yeah. So it was, it was intersecting with that. And the language of the encyclopedia is a descendant of what many guilds would put down in other kinds of documents, which was, you know, uh, how do you make steel? How do you, how do you do all this stuff? So there would be um, these books, but they were remarkable because they were gathering it all together. Uh, That is to say they were gathering, they weren't just doing like steel. They weren't just doing glass blowing. They were doing everything. Right. And their inspiration for that was from the previous generation. Uh, Francis Bacon, who was the Lord Chancellor of England. Wasn't he involved in uh, gunpowder as well? Is that the Bacon that was involved in gunpowder? Bacon was very enamored of how what are called the mechanical arts had progressed over the last several centuries. And he was very disgusted with how the liberal arts had not. You know, people were still studying Plato in order to understand what logic was and things like that. He said, look at these other things like gunpowder, clocks, um, these amazing achievements of the mechanical arts. And he said, why can't we combine these two together? And specifically, he proposed to a survey of England in this way to go out and and do this. But the the, the people who sort of picked it up most seriously were Diderot and D'Alembert. Um, quite a while la- later. Like a generation later? 
Yeah, we're talking about almost a generation. Yeah, a generation later. And in and in France. In France rather than England, right? Mm-hmm. But they were they if you read the encyclopedia, his that is say Bacon's influence is, is all over the place. Okay. Like that that's who they were inspired by. He said we should develop these artificial languages that allow people to describe without any sort of rhetoric, without any sort of persuasive element, without any kind of lies, um, how to do things and what is true. And so that got a variety of philosophers, like this guy Leibniz, who invented the calculus with Newton, um, trying to create an artificial language. And the way that I talk about this in the book is that the encyclopedias were also engaged in this project of Bacon, which was not just describing everything and how it got made, but also inventing a language within which to describe that. Because the issue was that, you know, one thing in one studio would be called a hammer, but in another studio would be called a mallet. And you had to standardize across literally hundreds and hundreds of workplaces both the machines, the operations, the movements, the gestures that everyone was making so that it would be legible rather than you have to learn some new lexicon for every craft that it was there. So artificial languages. A domain-specific language. Yeah. Right, because each craft, of course, had its deep language already set up. When Bacon was talking about this, besides having the correct nouns and maybe the correct verbiage for types of movements and things of mechanical pieces... Was there something else about the way writing was that didn't lead to being descriptive? Was he fighting against a more poetic way of writing? Well, it's it's a really interesting moment in history, and I, and I talk about this in the book, which is for a long time, people thought that language was intrinsically connected to the things that they described, right? So if you read Genesis, the first book of the Bible— God shows Adam all the animals, and he can name them immediately because the animal more or less spoke the name to him. Okay. Like there was this, this notion that by learning the names of things, we had power over those things, and, and vice versa. There was creating an intrinsic connection. So these were considered natural languages for a long time. And I guess the easiest analogy to today would be something like onomatopoeia or something like that right mm-hmm. or i say oh that doesn't that doesn't mean anything particular but you know it means connote something right until pretty much about right before bacon was writing those were considered natural languages okay but most of these people of course are also speaking multiple languages so if you're speaking multiple languages you know there's nothing natural about the words that mean something to i mean there are words that are totally different in two different languages that mean the same thing at some level. So why why was that? It's just not the way people thought about language. They thought of it being more intrin- intrinsically connected to its meaning. So we're we're talking about medieval, early modern, all the way sort of up to the 17th century. This is when Bacon right. was in play. And during that period, there was this distinction between natural languages like onomatopoeia is an, is an example of that, sounds that seem to mean what they say, and then what they called instituted languages. So instituted languages were things like English, French, German, Chinese. Those were con- seen, seen as constructs, uh, human-made constructs, right? Okay. And then there was a shift that happened where... Suddenly, the term natural language was applied to what in the previous century had been called instituted languages. And it's still the way we talk about it. We say that English is a natural language, right? When we talk about, especially in a computer context, we talk about natural language processing. We mean English or French or German or Chinese or Japanese or something like that. Uh, What in an earlier period would be instituted languages. And at exactly that moment when more or less the whole notion of natural language, language that was intrinsically connected to the natural world, um, when that disappeared, that's when this whole notion of an artificial language uh, arose. 
And the point of the artificial language in many ways to re was to reinvent that connection, that, that intrinsic connection to the natural world. What are they trying to capture in the natural or that, that connection? What are they trying to capture back? An onomatopoeia quality of ma machines? Machines was just a part of it. It was really the, the natural world. So the idea was to connect to the natural world directly. This is something that we see in science today. Mm -hmm. So the language of chemistry, for example, it's not supposed to convince you of something. It's supposed to be descriptive. Oxygen is oxygen. Right. It's just descriptive, right? It's right. purely descriptive. Oftentimes the way we talk about it today is in terms of logic. Logic isn't necessarily supposed to, like, you're not supposed to people lie in logic. You're not supposed to be able to tell some big whopper right. in logic, right? That's that's just aesthetically completely not keeping with the the essence of logic. Um, and so this is what they were inventing, was the, the, the roots of what today we might call logic or mathematics. Would you call these people part of the natural philosophy movement? Yeah, because Bacon's kind of the grandfather of natural philosophy, right? Yeah, so he, he invented a, a method that he called induction that many people uh, thereafter called the scientific method. Mm -hmm. it was, when you study, it's actually quite different than what we call the scientific method or induction today, uh, because that was more Humean than Baconian. But, what is um, Humean? Oh, Humean's another philosopher? Yeah, another philosopher, a little later. Um, and really, the, the person who... Uh, was able to create a method that went with these observations, these aspirations of Bacon, was Robert Boyle, who was at the Royal Society and uh, invented uh, a, a variety of things, like Boyle's Law, right? Uh, right. Boyle's yeah. Law says uh, temperature and, and volume of gases are related. Very useful for our refrigeration capabilities. Um, let's go back to 1740 period with our two French uh, encyclopedists. They're thinking about having this way of describing things, and they decide to start going to different institutes and creating all these or different artisans and documenting everything they do in these encyclopedias, which is very new in the sense that it's not just a collective work in one discipline, but multi across multiple disciplines, and trying to make a, a generic way of describing the hammer or the way a, a gear moves a certain thing. What was, do you know what what finances was beh were behind this? Because, of course, this would have been long periods of time for them. Were they just wealthy? Were they, did they have some royalty behind them or something? Do you know? Uh, that's a good question. Diderot was, uh, was not wealthy. He was the son of a craftsman, and... His father made cutlery, you know, silverware, spoons and knives and all that kind of stuff. Um, D'Alembert was a mathematician. I don't, I don't know what, where uh, D'Alembert's money came from, but Diderot made his living by, by writing uh, a variety of things. Like um, he wrote, he wrote novels. Uh, he wrote, he just he wrote a lot. That's why he got got paid. And this was a, in some ways, a, a giant commission, if I'm, um, okay. if I'm re remembering correctly. You know, there, there's people in history who, like, that is their specialty, is the encyclopedias. So mm -hmm. um, if, if people are interested in this, there's just tons, tons of reasons. Okay. Tons and tons, so right? what was there? I mean, if they, if they go to some guild or some crafts person and say, hey, I want to like just be in your shop for a couple of days and ask you all these questions and stuff, were they just really charismatic people? Were they able to convince people to do this? And how long did their process take? And were they successful in any way? So the, the introduction to the encyclopedia, they, they talk about that process some. And really, they... It, it sounded like they, they didn't get immediate pushback necessarily. Um, they spent a lot of time, as far as I can tell, really transcribing almost what the artists and the artisans said about what they were doing. Uh, but D'Alembert especially remarked that many people really weren't, uh, had no f uh, facility with words. They were very hard-pressed to describe what they were doing, describing um, the machines that they were using and so forth. 
Now we know from subsequent study that that was a sort of dismissive attitude of a bunch of them. Uh, the reason why there was a lot of machinery, for example, in the workshops was because the machinery was built by the people who were running the machines. They said, hey, we could automate this task, so we're going to build a machine to do this. And so they had really deep knowledge of everything in the workshop and the, all right, the they processes. Made it. Right. They made it. Yeah. Right. So you're saying that the language that the academics used, if you will, was to kind of critique these lower class people that didn't know how to communicate, even though these people were making these amazing machines. Well, I think what Diderot and D'Alembert, what their actual uh, accomplishment was, was to translate what was the talk of the workshop, um, what I call a work language. You go to any place and let's say you're making pins or something like that. You have a specific language to talk about how you divide up the labor and who should be doing what and, you know, the work when it's halfway through, what, what do you what call that? that? Yeah. Yeah. In the morning when you're having breakfast, what are we going to be doing today? We're going to be doing blah, blah, blah. You've got to be able to talk about it, right? You're working together yeah. with people. Sure. Yeah. And so they translated that into a language that was understood by people who had a completely different education. And that was pretty much the upper class. And an education meant having a liberal arts education, right? Knowing something about rhetoric and grammar and logic. Knowing something about music and astronomy, geometry, arithmetic. But not necessarily knowing what the work language is of craft, art and craft. Just right. as most of us, um, well, you're not like this. You, you know how to make everything. But, you know, I go to the garage to have my car fixed. And I pretend to understand what they're telling me that has to be done to the car, but I don't actually understand it. Right, right. <laughs> you don't, that's a totally different education. When they say we got to rework your rotor, you're like, that probably rotates. <laughs> that's all I got. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> What's really interesting is as you're talking about the language of craft, I, I have this great set of books about blacksmithing, Fundamentals of Blacksmiths. There's three volumes by Mark Asbury. And Mark's a California blacksmith who has these wonderful books with a lot of pictures. They're encyclopedias, if you will, of, of blacksmithing. And I've been doing blacksmithing for the last, I don't know, two years, three years. And I also found his YouTube channels. And though his books are very descriptive on what to do, like how you hold the hammer, how do you strike it, all this stuff is very, it's hard to grasp how to do that in a written word. And the things he's describing in paper, he probably would never tell an apprentice right next to him. He just watched the person that was apprenticing hitting with the hammer and change their angle and then kind of show them what happens if you do the wrong angle with this angle. There'd never be a, you know, your right arm needs to be at 30 degrees. Like that, that's not how you would talk to somebody in a workshop. So from some sense, I totally get that even if there was a language about it, there wasn't going to be a descriptive language because you see it. And in watching him, Mark, watch Mark, make things on his YouTube channel, you do get a feel for it because you get to see his body move. And there's something very physical there that's not really about language. But I think that that's, that's a perfect way of describing what their task was. Diderot and D'Alembert, could they send people out all across France? Because it wasn't just the two of them, right? There were many, many contributors It would have this. been a multi, yeah, multiple years if it was only two people. Oh, like it, it took it. decades to assemble this thing, <laughs> right? Right. right. And many, many people. And what those observers had to do was to describe on the written page what was made and how it was made and with what it was made to people who not only couldn't see the hammer swing, but probably had never held a hammer in their entire life, right? Right. So they had to describe what a hammer was. It seems pretty daunting. Well, it was, but also this was considered absolutely essential for for Bacon. And then you see it come up in, in this work. But then for many people afterwards uh, who are kind of in the foundations of computing, the question is if a lot of the wealth of the nation is coming out of these workshops, if you're benefiting from this, what what's your knowledge of how that happens, right? So you're you're a lord and you've got land and a whole bunch of people and there's a person a company that's making pins in your space. How is it possible that you are responsible for pins and the economy of that whole environment 
but you know nothing about the craft. Like that's kind of the argument to like why the upper class, if you will, should be aware of how these things work. Right. So, you know, we're, we're talking about this moment right before industrial capitalism takes off. Right. Right. Does this create industrial capitalism? Well, that you could, you could argue that um, in some ways, because um, let me d- just tell the whole story yeah, really yeah, quickly. Why, why are we talking about the, these, these French encyclopedists? Well, um, their article on making pins becomes the basis for the first chapter of uh, the economist Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations. And what Adam Smith says is what we need to really be paying attention to is how labor is divided, this division of labor. That's the key, more or less. And so for people who don't know who Adam Smith is, but he's kind of the ur-economist of capitalism in some ways, right? Is this the same period? So this is just slightly after. Okay. Um, Wealth of Nations comes out in, I believe, 1776, something like that. And then a few years later, after the French Revolution, right? The French Revolution is 1789. This guy, De Prony, gets commissioned by the new French revolutionary government to do these huge number of calculations. And what they need is they've changed the system, right? They went to the, um, the metric system. Mm-hmm. So they had to recalculate all these trigonometric tables and stuff. And he said, I don't have any mathematicians to do this, but if I read about this technique of division of labor, I can calculate, he said, I can calculate logarithms as easily as pins are made in the north of France, right? So he got together. This is Dupont? This, this guy is De Prony. De Prony. Okay. Yeah. And De Prony, his workforce was all of these people who formerly had been hairdressers and cleaners and you, you name it, like stable boys, completely unskilled in mathematics. He divided the task of calculating these things down to just very simple arithmetic. He taught everybody how to do it. And he had these just phalanxes, huge numbers of people working to do these calculations. And they do it in an assembly line manner. That's anachronistic, of course, but an assembly line manner that would produce these huge tables. This is sort of at the moment when computer starts to get used as a, as a label for a job. So to be a computer for hundreds of years, starting about then, meant to do calculations like this. If you said computer, you'd mean a person. Right. So they had to do all this calculation because they were moving to the metric system and all the tables that had been done before over passed through books in, in different types of forms, not in uh, the metric system. Is that why they had to redo it? I, I think so. Okay. I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little, I'm not remembering the exact reason but uh but because they, they, these... they really got charged by the revolutionary government to produce you know volume and volume and volume of work right. uh on on these these ba- the basic trigonometric and logarithmic yeah. functions yeah and and this is based off this idea that you can document processes like making pins very clearly and anybody can fulfill these little steps to do that right so you take this big math problem white collar work and you apply this uh, technique from blue-collar work, that is to say, you know, manual work, uh, to it, this technique called division of labor, and voila, you get uh, these calculations done. And then Babbage, Charles Babbage, a few years after that, he said, you know, what Duponi did with all these people, I can build a machine to do that. And now, there we are in the 1840s, with a machine, a design for a machine that everybody agrees is tantamount to a modern computer. It can do everything a, com- a modern computer can do. And is traditionally where, when you start talking about the history of computing, where you start. That's where you start, exactly. At Babbage. And Babbage machine, right. again, it really clearly is actually a logarithmic chart creation tool. That's what it is. All those steps that were done by humans is potentially done by gears. Now, it's actually not built up for years later, but conceptually it was a for calculating tables of mathematics mostly. But this was also 
there was another sort of intrinsic connection between Babbage and the encyclopedist. Babbage, so Babbage now is living in just the era after where industrial capitalism really has taken off. And he made it his business to go all over England and find out everything, how everything is made. Babbage does this? Babbage does this. He has this huge work on how everything is made. And now the way he got people to talk to him was he had a few what he what were almost like tricks. So Babbage would go to these workshops. Uh, let's say he'd go to a place where they were blowing glass or something like that. And he said, I'm going to teach you a new trick. Give me a huge sheet of glass and I'll punch a hole in it without breaking the glass. And he had a, he had a couple of these tricks where he could actually do it. And they were sort of totally fascinated. As a creator and a maker, he would impress them upon his skills. And then the, the shared respect would allow them to open up with him. Yeah. Yeah. Tricky. Wait, how did he break the glass? How did he do the glass thing? Do you know? You know, I've, I've heard it described, but I can't quite. You can't remember. I, it's fine. I, I just have not worked with glass enough to know. <laughs> if you know the story of how Babbage had the trick about breaking the glass, please let right. me and Warren know. I'm Lyle on Twitter. And Warren is? Warren Sack. Warren Sack on Twitter. So you can, you can hit us both up and tell us, how did Babbage make a hole in a sheet of glass? All right, go on. But it, it wasn't simple like drilling something in it. No, no, of course. Right? right. It was no, not. Just take a hammer and it'd go wham, and there it'd be. <laughs> That's cool. So Babbage was very much in the vein of this Lord Bacon project of categorizing how everything got made. Was he writing an encyclopedia of, of sorts as well? No, but the way this this work on manufacturing um, is addressed to the upper class, and he makes it very explicit what he's up to. He says, you know, we used to make our money off servants in the fields, but now we make our money, you know, very much upper class here, right? Sure. Now we make our money more or less with all the workers in the factories, but you with your education, probably have no idea how stuff is done and where what's the source of your wealth. Right. So read this book. That's so that's what appeal. he was writing. Okay. Yeah. And so he was using his kind of charismatic ways and, and of getting people to show him what was going on to also show and sell his book. Right, right. Okay, so Babbage makes his pitch in like mid-1800s showing that your wealth is the workforce, the factories, these even these small factories. How successful was this process of creating a language that defined work? I talk about this notion of a work language that we, we've just touched on. Yep. You go to work, you have colleagues, you say, okay, you're going to do this, I'm going to do that. What's a this and that? If, you, if, you've, <laughs> if, if you're not in the same business, you have no idea. Um, and there are, uh, let's just say, families of work language. And... The one family of work language is this language of um, that really has three main terms. The terms the design historian Antoine Picon uh, says for the encyclopedia, the three main terms are gesture, process, and operation. And all of these things are really keyed to the whole set of motions and the whole set of. Um, intricate interrelations that happen in producing a piece of work, right? Now, ironically, a very different family of work languages emerges pretty much at the same moment with some of the same people who develop this work language of the encyclopedia. And that's the work language that we know in contemporary physics and mechanical engineering when we say work or we uh, say energy. Uh, and that. The, the lever the, and the multiplication and the inclined plane and all that kind of language about work. Right. You can think about it. If there's two families of work language, one family comes out of the, the workshops and the studios of the artists and the artisans. The other work language, the one that we know today in physics and mechanical engineering, comes out of the construction site, where what they were really trying to do is quantify, let's say, how much work a common laborer does in digging a ditch how much uh does a mason how much work does a mason do in terms of just uh well no it's more the it's not the mason it's more the common laborer who's gonna lift the stones 
for the mason up to how, the second story. How many of the oxen building. do you need to to build the building? Like right. that kind of thing. And so the the basic unit, if the basic units of the work language of the encyclopedia are process, uh, gesture, operation, the basic unit of the this other work language is the foot pound. You raise certain weights to certain heights, and that's a measure of the work that you've done. Now, well, if you've are, ever taken these are very if, different things. This is, one is like talking about energy, and one is talking about intellect. I mean, they're, they're, they're different things, right? Well, I think they are very different things, but, um, you know, the offspring of uh, the work language of, of physics, if you will, was information theory. What? So <laughs> that doesn't seem like it would, it would even leave there, but I see no, where that does from. But of yep. course, because we have a whole, because I happen to be, pretty well educated in how computer science grew and so i can see where it comes from but let's talk about these lost gesture process operations seems mm -hmm. like pretty fundamentally uh important ways of thinking about a pro uh, about making things or describing how things are done are those just called are they just gone because i i mean i know what those terms mean but they're mm -hmm. not like what happened why why did one win out well one didn't win out um they've both been developed in parallel very much so but they're actually very different things and but in contemporary discussions about for example information technologies they get conflated as though they're the same thing they're just not the same thing okay so, so let's talk about this really clear where they're not the same thing one's right. talking about like you know the person bends over and lifts things up and rotates and moves and takes his hammer and hits from a side and all of this kind of operations and, and movement and all those things. And the other is just describing like how much mechanical advantage you can produce off of, from a force perspective, a very base level physics concept of what energy is, which does, I mean, it's a great way to talk about energy and how you can transition energy from one state to another. And there's a lot of interesting things going on there. Um, but they're not, it's not about, there's nothing, there's no information, if you will, in that space. There's just ways of talking about one thing becoming something else. Um, well, in a very physics way. It's hard so, to describe how different they are, but they're very different. Well, I, I think it's, if you think of each has a dramatis persona in the middle, each has a kind of canonical figure. One, the language of physics has the laborer who's moving stones or who's digging ditches and the other is what we could refer to now as skilled labor yeah somebody who's making jewelry or some somebody who's sewing stockings or somebody who is making pins right and the output of one can be reduced to one number okay i did so much work i i I produce so many foot pounds, right? And that was developed specifically, originally, by this guy Coulomb, who, um, if you know electromagnetics, right, from from physics, there's a Coulomb. Um, that's that's one of these measures <laughs> uh, that applied to electrostatics. Uh, but for that that set of developments in that work language, it was relating everything from thermodynamics to mechanics to electrodynamics all together, right? To right. be able to say this is, and, and we see this when we talk about how much power is generated if we do this or if we do that, right? Right. Um, and then the other, the dramatis persona of the other one, let's say this workshop full of people who are producing pins is the output is a number of pins, right? Uh, done over the course of the day and done to either skillfully or else like poorly. And so this, oftentimes when people first encounter the first language, the language, the work language of physics um, in an introductory physics class, they're sort of taken by surprise because to the extent that you lift 
something, some weight to a certain height, you've done work. But if you take that same weight and put it back down to where you got it, that's considered negative work. And the sum total of work you've done is zero, right? right. So the work you do in a gym, for example, lifting weights is zero from right. this perspective. Right. The work you do, let's say, probably pretty much anything in a skilled labor studio would be essentially zero. Like it's not, it's not a measurement. Right, right. <laughs> Material comes into the studio, maybe three steps up. At the end, it goes right. back down to the end. Yeah, okay. And so the reason why that can get extended into information theory is because uh, the quantitative measure of information is the number of states that a given system can be in. I think, okay, you're not losing me directly, but you kind of are. How are we jumping now to information theory, though? Okay, so, so this gets... Why is this part of language chapter? The question is, for software, for computing, what, what is the language we use to describe that in? And there's a lot of people who would say, well, that's the language of physics. And I'm pointing out that the language of physics, even as it extends into information theory, is not at all the language of software. Right. The language of software is a language of art and craft. It's not of uh, the laborer, whatever. Right. But right. isn't, isn't the, the, that the word work comes from meaning to do like lifting? It's like the base or uh-huh. moving, moving dirt or something is work. Yeah. That doesn't, we've now transcend that term. So we have this historic concept of what work is, but we, I definitely think even though I don't actually lift anything all day and really what I'm doing is, you know, typing on keys and do no physics work by the end of the day, except for loss of heat, that's, I consider that a work. So from some level, I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't seem like the physics description of what work is has to do really what creativity is. There's, they're, they're very different pieces. Totally. Okay. Completely. I, I completely... Okay, so that, that yeah. separation makes a lot of sense. The thing that I don't understand is that you said that we now start talking about... In one way, I could even say that like intellect is in this... Uh, in, in, intelligence, if you will, or communication, all these things that we kind of... I think of as higher importance, if you will from a human perspective, comes in this area of gesture and process and operation and describing that we'll run out of energy at some point if the if in the heat death of the universe is the the foot pound world. That one is not mm-hmm. about uh, intelligence or communication or any of those things. But then you said, and I gotta get that bifurcation, and then you said that when we talk about information theory, it comes out of this ladder. How right. how is that? How does it come out of there? Well, so the the basic unit of work in its uh, of physics was originally just called the foot pound, but we call it a joule now. Mm-hmm. For the next generations, that is to say, nineteenth century generation, um, James Prescott Joule, uh, Joule, who was both a physicist and a beer brewer. Okay, and what. Uh, that kind of signals is the set of problems about thermodynamics that were addressed using this work language. And a lot of that uh, had to do with um, just, you know, what's the difference between, let's say, uh, ice and air, right? Or ice and water. Well, ice, like all the molecules are in a very specific state and they're all in relation to one another in a very uh, compact form, right? It's, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very regular structure to ice. But as soon as we start to heat it up, like the molecules, when they go to water, we know we, they swirl around, they're in very different configurations. And then if we vaporize that, uh, then... We've got it in the air, and it's it's all kinds of crazy dynamics between the molecules, right? Right. So this is seen as an increase in, in entropy, an increase in disorder, right? So um, the question, you can think about this a little more uh, colloquially, like let's say I've got a really messy office and my books are all over the place. It's a, it's a state of extreme disorder, right? And... If uh, I put them all back on the shelves and I tidy everything up, 
um, it's uh, it's ordered. It's again. very it's very well ordered, right? So this question of order and disorder becomes a very important aspect to trying to trying to understand thermodynamics. Which, of um, course, the difference between those different states also is how much energy you've put into the system versus lost in the system, if you will. They're, they're correlated. Right, exactly. So that energy question is correlated to chaos and, and order. And, when you th and so that's how it ties back into information theory. Right, right. And so the question in information theory, uh, the main question of information theory, was taken from thermodynamics, which is given any physical system, be it my office or a piece of ice, uh, how many different states can it be in? Right. Um, with my office, the books can be all over the floor in various kinds of configurations. The number of states that it can be in is a measure of information. Right. So um, if you've got a very simple system that can only have like two states or something like that, that's that's very low information. So that's how you get from one place to another. In order to get it back into order, you have to do some work. You got to lift stuff around and put it back into place, right? Yeah. Some of the line art that came from the encyclopedias you've actually been able to reprint in your book. Yeah, that's all copyright free now. That's awesome. Pin Just wait print. for a couple hundred years, everything is. Eventually, hopefully. Unless Disney gets their way. <laughs> Let's talk about functions and op operations and, okay. and yeah. the differences. Describe those two to me. So functions, we all know what functions are. We've all at least heard our high school algebra teacher talk about functions, which is, you know, uh, you give it some input, it gives you some well-specified output, right? So a, a function could be something as simple as uh, dividing a number by two. So you input two, you get back one. Input four, you get back two. And that is a newer notion of function uh, that's very much tied to the development of mathematics. There was a time when there was no such thing as a mathematics of functions, right? And most people would date that invention to Leibniz, who was one of the inventors of the calculus who was also one of these people working on artificial languages, right? Before that, what did function mean? Well, you can still say function in the old way. I could say, uh, Lyle, what's your function at work? Right. And then I'm really asking you, what's your job? Right. right? What do you do? I'm not asking you, like, do you divide numbers or something like that, right? Right. <laughs> and that older notion of function connects very much with the way we still use operation. In yeah. many ways, operation. You know, what what are the operations? Uh, what do, what do you engage with? What operations does this company engage with? What what are the operations of this branch of government? What are, what are your yeah. operations? And operation that's just you know the the Latin term for function more or less okay. or work. It's just opera just means work, right? At a certain point, let's just say roughly after Leibniz. Uh, mathematicians have this much more specific notion of what a function is. And then when we get to Babbage, and especially to Ada Lovelace, who's the first programmer, because she writes a program with Babbage's design, um, in operations. And Lovelace is very uh, articulate about how this is a machine of operations and that it's quite different from logic and mathematics. Really? And she she thinks of it as different than logic and mathematics. She thinks of it very as specific. Very specific. It's a, it has its own specificities. It's, it's its own language. And as I mentioned, operation is one of the main terms in the French encyclopedia. You describe right. what's the work. What's the, what's this operation like to make make pins? What do you do? You know, you get some big chunk of metal. Uh, your first operation is actually to pull it into these long like pieces of wire. Your next operation is to clip it here and there. They use operation to talk about all those things. Okay. So it's a series of operations. And so that's a much more expansive notion of what a piece of work is, mm -hmm. right, than, than just function. Now, you can describe the history of computer science as an attempt 
to rewrite all these really various operations into the language of functions. But it's kind of like putting a round peg in a square hole. You're going to lose stuff, right? Mm. So, for example, one thing that you lose with functions is you have no notion of interaction, right? Oper a function has input and has output. Yes. There doesn't happen anything in between. There's no there's no uh, break time for coffee. Uh, there's no consult your consult your neighbor to see if you're pulling the the metal into wires correctly. There's no like check it against this. No, it's input output, right? right. In fact, there's a whole class of programming languages which is supposed to have no what's called side effects, and mm -hmm. that's it's one it's one way of describing when your software isn't operating like functions is to say it has side effects. And of course, if you have something that has no side effects, it's not doing anything. Like that, <laughs> that's how you describe <laughs> a rock, right? <laughs> but it's it's funny. It's a little bit more esoteric computer science aspects of this. But that's No, but I get back to this in the yeah. conclusion to yeah. the book. Yes, I know. I do. I know. But we're talking about language right now, so go on. Right. Yeah. So the, 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 the question is, and this is, this is very much a pressing question for uh, computing today, especially in terms of uh, introductory programming. What's the what language are you describing computation in? Is it the language of mathematics, which would imply that it's the language of functions? Um, well, in fact, no, it's not. No, it's like there are ways of writing functional code, as you were saying, with functional languages. But if you stick strictly to that, nothing gets changed. Yeah. Um, you need you need at the very least for a functional language, you need a way to to print something on the screen. And we're going to wrap up this discussion right now about this chapter and such, and and we will we will have another one of these where we start talking about algorithm, which we might touch upon some of these topics a little bit more in the next episode. But would you say that the reason why we intermingle these concepts in computer science so much is because the discipline is owned? from this foot-pound world? This really uh, connects with the next chapter on algorithms because what happened at the beginning of computer science, and here we're talking uh, the early 1960s, right? There was, there was no such thing called computer science before the early 1960s. Right. And there were some foundational figures uh, at that time. So Donald Knuth, who's now Emeritus Professor of the Art of Computer Programming at Stanford, uh, really developed this whole area called analysis of algorithms. And that was seen as very mathematical. It was presented as very mathematical. In fact, if you take a course today as an undergraduate in analysis of algorithms, it will be described as mathematical and mathematics. And when computer science was originally described in the journal Science by... Uh, Alan Newell, Herbert Simon, Alan Perlis, what they said was this will definitely not be, they're writing in the mid-1960s, this will not be a discipline that's just about algorithms. Now, if you look at the first curriculum that was done to recommend how computer science should be taught in universities across the country, this was done in 1968, What's the central concept? It's algorithm. You look at the newest issue from the Association for Computing Machinery, which is one of the main computer science uh, professional organizations. Uh, the latest one you can get is 2013. Uh, what's the number one thing? It's algorithm, right? So algorithm is exactly the code that you can express as a function. Yeah. It does not include all these other things that would perfectly be reasonable to do as an operation, but it, it's the stuff that can just be done as functions and just be analyzed mathematically. Or a process or a gesture. I mean, there's all these other aspects. Like when I, I'm a user interface engineer, right? And I am thinking about how a human interacts with the software and they are clicking on buttons and dealing with yeah. things that are based on mouse movement, which is their hand movement. And I have to think not about how a function executes, and I'm using another term for that, when, he, when the person clicks on it, but can they see it? 
do they understand the language of what it's saying to them? Like this whole interface is about a human. And none of that is really in this algorithmic area at all. So right. is there any, more, any closure? And we will get more into algorithms in the next episode. Any closure to language that you wanted to touch on before we finish up and, and get off to our evenings? Well, let, let's just go back to these three terms that are totally central to the French encyclopedias, which is operation and process, and then gesture. Okay, so computer programming languages, we've got hundreds of them yes. where you can express operation and process, right? That, that, that's the main construct for, for many things. That's right. Even if we call them, unfortunately, functions. functions. <laughs> we have, actually do, yes. Right. But we also think about as operations at some level, too. We'll, we'll even produce uh, languages that describe uh, how something moves from state to state. And we'll talk about those as operations, too. So those right. things are kind of, yeah. But gesture, no. But gesture has become very important now. It was really understudied, I would say, from a computer science perspective for decades. But now when we've got accelerometers, when we've got all kinds of you know touch screens and things like that, uh, you look at the APIs that are being produced by, by Microsoft or Apple, anything where actually there's an analysis of gesture going on there. Yes. And this is a new... Uh, imperative really is to kind of have a an understanding what gesture is and that if you was yeah what that that's for that is that's key to all uh contemporary interface design absolutely and i i'm a mobile developer have been for years as a mobile developer and you know the iphone for example is a gesture interface like by by definition and in fact if you have an app and you start getting really familiar that if you play a game a lot what you're doing, you're, you're dancing, if you will, with your fingers on the screen. The way that we read those things and understand them, there's not a lot of computer science engineering aspect of this. This is about feel and aesthetic and a design sense. And yeah. I've done a lot of work on like animation flows and movement based off of finger touches and things. And it really comes down to me just getting something I like and then talking with somebody else, a designer, and talking about the motion of it. And we're not using any of the terminology of, of algorithms and functions and, and that. We're talking about, we do talk about Bezier curves a bit. We are talking a bit about curves. But uh, <laughs> just because we want to talk about over time, and that's the, the terminology. So there's a bit of that mixed in math in there as well. Bezier curves from, comes from shipbuilding and architecture. Ah, yes, of course. But the question maybe we should leave with is, how would computer science education look differently if gestures and interactions and interfaces were at the center of the curriculum and not algorithms. I like it. Good close. Nicely done. Like a pro. <laughs> the book is The Software Arts by Warren Sack. It's available from MIT Press. And of course, he also has many papers and things you can find out about Warren by just doing a search for Warren Sack on the Google's if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, please do so. Make sure to listen to subscribe so you catch the next episode, which is not as frequent as I was hoping. But hey, now that we're at home all the time, maybe it will be more frequent you know, that you've got a mic. And, and just... Thank you, Warren, for being on the third episode of your book on Geekscape. Thank you, Lyle. Have a good evening. You too. Stay safe.